chapter 8, we're reading verses 31 to 34. Um, if you're joining us for the first time or you haven't been here in a while, we've uh, been in a series in Romans 8 that we're calling uh, Eight Reasons to Rejoice in the Gospel. And I think from the beginning of this series, many wondered how could we speak, uh, spend nine weeks uh, in a single chapter. Uh, well, this is how. And uh, if you weren't sure uh, when I first said it about eight weeks ago, I hope you're sure now and convinced Romans 8 really is the GOAT chapter. It is the greatest of all time. You know, today we're looking at our seventh reason to rejoice, which is to rejoice that we have a strong defender. And then next week, uh, Pastor Seth will actually bring us home as he closes this series uh, with the eighth reason, which is an inseparable love. And so uh, look forward to that. So at this time, please stand with me. Uh, it is your act of worship as we read and receive God's holy word with listening ears and listening hearts. Hear now the reading of God's word from Romans 8, beginning with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And let's pray once more, asking God's blessing. Father, you have spoken. And so give us your spirit so that we may hear. Not just hearing with our ears, but with our hearts and with our minds. And hearing in such a way that it leads to change and transformation that's reflected, God, in the way that we live uh, to honor you. And the way we live to believe in the truths you give us and to live in a way that obeys you. Father, bless now the preaching of your word. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember hearing a story about a very successful and prominent defense lawyer in the early 1900s. And when he retired, he revealed some of the tactics, some of the strategies that he used during uh, his trials, which actually led to a very high uh, winning percentage. And he shared that uh, when the prosecutor had a very compelling witness or was making a really persuasive argument, that he would light up a cigar. Now, keep in mind, this was a time, early 1900s, when smoking indoors was allowed, even in courthouses. But what everyone didn't know in that courtroom was that right before the trial, what this lawyer had done is he would take a paper clip and he would flatten it out and he would stick it right through the cigar. And the reason he did that was so that as this uh, prosecutor was making this uh, persuasive claim or, or this witness was giving co uh, compelling testimony, uh, he would light this cigar. And as he was smoking the cigar and the ashes kept on burning, Burning, because it was held in the middle by a uh, paper clip, the ashes wouldn't fall off. And what that served to do is it distracted everybody in the jury from listening to whoever was speaking as they sat on the edge of their seats in anticipation. Oh, when is this going to fall? When is this going to fall? And the man made a career essentially of defending people in the court using cheat tricks and tactics and antics like, like this. Now, if you were to go to court 
today and you needed an attorney, would you want one with these kinds of tricks and tactics up their sleeves? Or would you want a lawyer who could win by mounting a great defense on facts and evidence? You see, Christianity says that all of us are involved in a judicial case. We've all been summoned and we will one day appear in the courtroom of heaven. But unfortunately for us, we are the accused party and the evidence is stacked pretty high against us. There is no doubt in anybody in that room, and there's especially no doubt even in ourselves, that we are guilty of each one of those charges leveled against us. But in that final day, all of us, we are going to have one of two choices. We will either try to represent ourselves before God, or we can choose to be represented by another. And the good news of the gospel, the good news that Christianity offers, is that before this judge, we have one who stands as our strong defender, and his name is Jesus. That Jesus stands to plead for you and to advocate for you with his life and his blood. And friends, this is the seventh reason you have to rejoice in the gospel. Those who trust in Christ have a strong defender. Those who trust in Jesus have a strong defender. The question is, do you know this strong defender? You know, last week uh, we looked at uh, the verses right before, and in verse 30 we saw what was called the golden chain of salvation. And basically it goes like this. Those whom God foreknew, uh, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. And last week we called this uh, having a full salvation that, that from beginning to end, from start to finish, God is working out this great salvation on your behalf. So Paul, he shows us this wonderful picture of salvation, this golden chain of salvation, this beautiful gift. And then he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? And what Paul means here is, what else can I say? What else could I possibly add to this? It's almost like he's so satisfied and overjoyed and fulfilled in the salvation he just described that he kind of sits back with a grin on his face and he's admiring, he's adoring God. And he says, what else can I say? What else can I add? You can't add to this. You can't improve on this. There's nothing else to say. So then his conclusion is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now the if here is not a hypothetical if, it's a consequent. It really means because. If God is for us, it really means because God is for us, who can be against us? Because God is for me, there isn't anything in this life that can bring me down into defeat or despair. It's almost like in one sense, like Paul is trash talking. He knows God is on his side. He knows that there is no person, no force, nothing in all creation that can prevail over him. They can try, but they will fail. And so his confidence isn't in himself, but it's in the God who is for him. The one who is in his corner. Now imagine living life with this kind of confidence in your daily life. You know, last week, right after uh, service, uh, there was that almost, uh, uh, that amazing uh, five-hour uh, Wimbledon match between uh, Novak uh, Djokovic and, and Federer, right? You know, these two players, amazing performance, great tennis players, not as good as Mark, but, you know, up there. Now, imagine having any one of these guys volunteer to be your tennis partner. And they're your tennis partner, and they showed up with you at the local recreation center, you know, during the open court night. 
If you had any one of these as your partners, you would walk into that court with a strut, wouldn't you? Like you were untouchable because you knew you'd be unbeatable. You'd walk in with full confidence and assurance that nobody stood a chance against your team. And it's not because you were so great, it's because the one who stood with you is so great. And that's the kind of confidence Paul is exhibiting. It's almost like he's walking under the tennis courts, he's looking at every other team and saying, well, so when's the competition showing up? This is what Paul is doing. Because God is for me, who can be against me? Now, if you think about it, that question, it's not really rhetorical. It can be answered. Who can be against us, Paul asks. Well, there can be a lot of things against the Christian. Paul's actually going to answer everything that's against them later. In, in fact, if you look at verse 35, he's going to tell us what things stand against them. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All of these things stand against him. They all stand against believers. So Paul is saying, and he's not saying nothing will stand against you, as in nothing will oppose you. What he means is that when God is for you, none of these can prevail over you. These things can't hurt you. They can't cause your feet to stumble. They can't discourage you. They have no power over you. So the question is, as a believer, if you know God is for you, do you live the everyday faith, the everyday reality of verse 31? This is a great assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the difference, though, is Paul is not speaking proudly. He's speaking confidently. And there's a difference here. Because if Paul was speaking proudly, he, was, he would say, nothing can stand against me. Nothing can prevail over me. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's boasting in God. His confidence in God. He's saying, God is for me, so nothing can stand against me. You see, your confidence as a Christian should derive from the fact that it's God who fights for you, not the fact that you fight for yourself with God's help. You know, too often in our culture, uh, we're tempted to treat God like our cheerleader rather than our champion. You know, it, it, it's like if life is a boxing ring and the difficulties of life are the opponent, you know, who is in the ring doing the fighting? Who's fighting against those difficulties? And, and narcissistically, so self-centeredly as we often are, we imagine we are in the ring. And there's the opponent, right? Our, our accusations, our guilt, our shame, our fears, our, our betrayals, our rejections, our, all of those things. And, and we imagine ourselves to be the one fighting. And when you conceive of life and yourself in this way, you only need God to be something like how a, a boxer needs a coach or a manager in their corner. Because if God is just relegated, reduced to this kind of boss, manager, coach, then all we need to do is, is listen to him and follow his advice and receive his encouragement. And a lot of us kind of live with God in that kind of way. As if it's we who fight, as if it's we who are the warriors, as if it's we who are the champions. But the reality is that you don't need to defeat anything. You need to be defended. It is God who goes out into the ring for you and fights for you. It is God who guarantees you victory. And it's because God fights for you and not against you that you have this confidence that nothing can prevail over you. This is a picture of what it means for God to be our strong defender. But is God's 
Is God everyone's strong defender? Think about that with me. Is God everyone's strong defender? And the answer is, is no. The only people who can have the confidence that when they step into the ring, it is God who comes in and says, stay in the corner, I'll take care of it. The only people who could have such confidence are those who are in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul writes in the next verse, in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The only way that you can have confidence that God is for you and not against you is when you have confidence that God did not spare his own son for you and gave him up for you and you received that by faith. Because Paul's logic goes something like this. He says, because God was willing to give up his son for you, he will do all things for you. He will let nothing prevail over you. He will protect you. He will serve you. He will guard you in that way. He will graciously give you all things, all things, by the way, being all things you need, not all things you want. God will graciously give you all things you need, not all things you want. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, if God gave us, gave us his one and only son, and he gave him up to make you his own, then why would he do anything less to keep you his own? Right? If God gave up the most precious things to make you his, then why would he give up nothing to keep you his? And when you understand that point, Jesus becomes for us two things. Jesus becomes for us first a gift from the Father, and then he's also a guarantee from the Father. Now, what do I mean by that? First, it means Jesus is a gift from the Father. By not sparing him, the Father sent Christ to the cross to receive our punishment in our place, to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. That's, that's the gift of Jesus. But if we know Christ is a gift for us and how precious he is, we know that's a guarantee from the Father. Because it's a guarantee that says, because the Father gave up his precious son, you can have certainty that he will give up, he will give to you all other things. How does that work? You know, in the Bible, over and over again, the Father declares to and about his son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves God the Father. And this is the nature of their relationship. For eternity, loving one another, mutually, perfectly. And it's because the Father has this incredible love for his Son, because it's so intense, it's so intimate, that's what makes it so amazing that the Bible would tell us that God would give his own Son to die for our sins. Because the Son to the Father is the most precious and costly gift that he could give to us. Which means this, that, that anything else the Father gives you, it falls so short in comparison to the worth of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like saying if God's going to give you that most precious thing, why wouldn't he give you these other things? These other things are scraps. And that's good news to us because it means as you receive the gift of Jesus, we receive a guarantee. He will give to us all things that we need because he didn't withhold his son. And I imagine it like this, like... I'm not a, 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 well, I guess I am a collector. If you go to the office, I collect books. But imagine I, I was a collector of, like, watches. Or for some of you, like, whiskey or, or whatever, right? And you asked to borrow something from me. You asked to taste something from me. And I said to you, yeah, of course, anything, anything that I have, take it, it's yours. Now, most of you would be pretty conservative in, in what you took. You'd be polite, you'd be respectful, right? You wouldn't go for the best things. You would go for the things in the middle. You wouldn't reach for the, you know, top shelf. You'd reach for the middle. But let's 
let's say you said, hey man, can I borrow a watch? And I went into my closet or my drawer and I brought out this very expensive Rolex that I had and I said, yeah, try this on, wear this for the week. Or you came over, you said, hey, can I have a taste of whiskey? I don't have this, by the way, but, you know, I'm just trying to be relatable. So I poured you a glass of, you know, Dalmore 25, 25 years old. I looked that up on the internet. If I poured you that, then in that gesture, you would know that nothing is off limits. If, if I'm giving you my best, my most expensive thing, my most precious thing, I'm proving that I'm graciously generous. Now, if I offer, you know, yeah, this Omega watch, I mean, 10000 yeah, you can borrow this. Then if you ask next week for my Timex or my Casio, why would I say no? Of course not. I've given you my best. I'll give you this. If I offered you, you know, McCollin 1989, found out it's a $12,000 bottle. If I gave you, you know, a shot of that. Is that what you call it? A shot? I don't know. And then you came up to me and you said, you know, well, can I have a taste of that Jim Beam? Why would I not? If God has given to us his very best, Jesus Christ, his one and only son, most precious, most glorious, why would he not also give us all things when they fail in comparison to how great he is? And the thing is, God was not willing to give you his son. God gave us his son. And so doing, we know he will graciously give us all other things. Because we were so expensively bought and purchased, he will not let anything happen to us. You know, what kind of person would give a fortune to attain something and then give up nothing to protect it? And only a fool would do that. A jewelry collector doesn't buy a $10 million diamond necklace and then leave it on their coffee table because they're too cheap to buy a safe for it. They would equally invest in a security system to protect it, wouldn't they? Because what is valuable enough to purchase is valuable enough to protect. If God purchased you with his son's life, you better know that God will protect you at all costs. If God gave up his son for you, he will guard you against anything that stands against you. Now, Paul brings two specific things into the picture now. What do we need to be defended against? What are some of those things that come and attack us? And Paul introduces these two things in the form of two questions. First, in verse 33, he asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then in verse 34, who, shall, uh, who is to condemn? And Paul's saying, What you, you need defending against, what you need protection against, what you need guarding against, are these two things brought against you, a charge and a condemnation. We have a charge leveled against us because of our sin and our sinful actions. Right? Through our disobedience against God, through our worshiping other things above God, through living uh, for ourselves instead of God, we have a charge brought against us in the heavenly courtroom. But we also have a condemnation that looms over us because those sinful actions have shown we are guilty. Right? We stand condemned as our guilt rightly leads us to be. And, and whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, this is the predicament of every single person in this room, every single person who walks this earth, that we all, each one of us, have assigned to us already a personal case number, and we're on the docket in God's courthouse. We're going to have to appear one day. We're all going to have, we're all going to, have to answer to the charge and to the condemnation against us. The only choice of the matter is whether you will rise to your own defense and try to be your own lawyer or whether you will look to the defense of another. 
Now look at how Paul constructs verse 33 in the order in which he writes these sentences. Paul could have grouped two questions together and written, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Right? And if Paul was, you know, one of those uh, fiery preachers, that's exactly what he, what he would have done. He, he would have let it loom, would let it linger, let it sit. But that's not what he does. He asks a question, then he answers it right away. He asks a question, and then he answers it right away. Just as he brings up the issue, he dismisses it with gospel hope. He brings up a charge, he dismisses it with gospel hope. He brings up a condemnation, he dismisses it with gospel hope. And he makes sure that you know Jesus stands at your defense at every charge and every condemnation that you may face. Some of you may be familiar with that actor, that great uh, Oscar-deserving uh, actor, Dwayne Johnson. Before he did movies, before he did reality television, um, he was in the WWE, right? The World Wrestling Enterprise. If you don't know Dwayne Johnson, he's more better known even now as The Rock, that famous wrestler. Now, I didn't watch wrestling growing up, um, but I remember hearing his catchphrases imitated and spoken by people everywhere that I went. He has a couple of them. Maybe you know some of them. Uh, but one of the things that he did is quite entertaining is uh, one of the things he's known for was that he would ask somebody a question. But before he gave them a chance to respond, he'd interrupt and say, it doesn't matter if you're familiar with that. And it was quite a catchy thing to do. I remember growing up and, and people you know, doing that all the time. It's, it's a catchy thing to do. It's annoying to hear it done to you. But I bring this up because I think this is the most helpful way to read and understand Romans 8, 33 and 34. You need to hear this passage in the voice of the rock. Right? Now, it may sound and seem silly to you, but, but it's really, I think, the best way to actually capture Paul's rhetorical effect and get his point across. Because you've got to read it like the rock, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It doesn't matter. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It doesn't matter. Christ Jesus is the one who died. <laughs> yes, I really did that. And I know this is recorded. <laughs> But I did it because I want you to really remember this point and learn how to use the defense of Christ against the voice of the accuser, against the world, even your own sinful flesh that, that points and tries to level and, 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 and burden you more and more with the charges and the condemnation. And what Paul is saying is, it doesn't matter. Who will bring any charge? It doesn't, God is, justifies you. Who's going to condemn you? It doesn't matter. Christ Jesus died for you. And we as Christians, we need, to, we need to do more than just know Christ is our defense. We need to learn how to practice it in our lives. That when we feel the rising pressure of the charges and the condemnation built against us, coming against us, to learn how to turn to Christ as our defense. We must learn how to answer you see, who stands in, um, and let me ask this, right now, as you live your daily Christian life and you hear voices of you know, accusations and charges, you, you feel condemnation, we all, we all feel it, how do you answer it? And so many of us, what we tend to do is we tend to uh, channel what Paul Tripp calls our inner lawyer. Right? We jump to our own defense, whether through self-righteousness or, or any other thing. But do you realize how, how limited and inadequate of a defense that actually is? 
you were to stand before God and these charges are brought against you, charges of your sin, you stand before God on the final day, he lists all the charges, this is everything you're guilty of, and you stand, what will you say? What evidence of your innocence can you, can you bring? Now, some of you maybe think, you know, well, I've done a few good things in, in life, you know, I'm a good person. And in fact, you know, some of you have done a lot of good things in your life. You're, you're, you're a really good person. And so many people think that if there's a God, and when I stand before him um, on that final day, if, you know, if he exists, then, then, then I just really hope, yeah, I know I've done a few bad things, but I just really hope that God will see the good things that I've done, and then, and then God will deal with me according to those good things. And that's a fair way to think. But that's not how court works. That's not how justice works. If you go to court tomorrow because you were speeding and you got a ticket, and you stand before the judge, do you plead your innocence by presenting the evidence of every time that you drove according to the speed limit? I mean, you could do that, but it would be irrelevant and wouldn't get you off the, the hook because you're in court to answer for the laws that you did break. You need a better defense. When you stand before God on the final day and you're charged with all of these laws you've broken, you need a better defense than trying to show him all the laws that you kept. Okay, but that's irrelevant to what the charges brought against you. You need a better defense than your own righteousness and your own good deeds and your own good works. You need gospel hope. You need Christ's defense, and Paul gives it to you. It is God who justifies. God gives his son to stand in your defense. Jesus lived the perfect life, the perfect obedient life that we couldn't live. And then with that righteousness, like a robe, he decides to put it on you. And he clothes you with his righteousness. And so now as we stand before God, the judge, what does it mean to say God justifies? God gives you his son's righteousness. Now he looks at you and he doesn't see the guilt. He doesn't see the sin. He sees Christ. And he declares over you, righteous. You need a better defense than your own. You need the defense of Christ. So that's how you answer the charges. Well, how do you answer the condemnation? The condemnation of all of the sin that, that is stacked against us, especially when your conscience can't bear it anymore. And the reality is because we all deal with condemnation in some way. Whether we realize it's from the Holy Spirit or, or, or whether we understand you know, internally that we've wronged God. Like, whether you understand that or not, the reality is we all deal with condemnation one of two ways. Generally one of two ways. You either try to pay it off or you play it off. You either try to pay it off or play it off. What do I mean? Well, when you pay off your condemnation, what are you doing? You're trying to make up for it, right? You're, you're trying to make up for the wrongs that you've done. And so you jump on the tiring treadmill of performance. And this is just a natural human reaction, right? I mean, isn't it like even when you eat a little too much and then you feel a little guilty? Right? Let's say, hypothetically, you went to Hibachi Buffet on 309 yesterday and you ate a little more than you should. Don't you work out a little harder, stay on the treadmill a little longer. Why? Because you're working harder to burn off the calories, to burn off the condemnation and the sense of guilt you feel. And that's why the gyms are so crowded after Thanksgiving and after Christmas and after the New Year's. But spiritually, we do that. We sin, and so we try to pay it off because we don't like this feeling of condemnation. But we don't understand how much the debt that stands against us is because it's an infinite offense to sin against an infinite God. And we could never pay this off. The debt is way too much, but there is defense in Christ. 
you know, a few weeks ago, uh, Paul Tripp posted this, this poem he wrote. I think it really helpfully captures the reality of the gospel. It's called Paid. And this is how it goes. I paid some bills yesterday. Checks written, envelopes stamped. Went online to pay discount, uh, distant accounts. Went to the market, paid for my sustenance. Drugstore had my medication, paid there too. Walked to crowded sidewalks, paying emotionally for my impatience. Paid the next day for a sleepless night. I seem to pay all day, every day, but it is not true. There was debt, my mountain instead, a heavy unbearable weight, 10,000 years of work with all the perfection I could muster could not settle that debt. So you stepped into my dilemma to alter my spiritual economy on the cross as my substitute. You wrote the ultimate check. I will still buy things and pay in other ways, but I will never carry that debt again. This is why the Apostle Paul writes, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. You know, if you've been relating to God by, by trying to pay him back, to atone for your sins, the gospel gives you permission to stop. Stop trying so hard because you can't make up for it. And instead, trust in Christ's sufficient substitutionary death for you. Christ wrote the check. He wrote it on his body. He signed it with his blood. It's been paid in full. Now, the other way, if the first way we try to deal with our condemnation is to pay it off, the other way is we try to play it off. What do I mean by that? We deny our sins are that bad. Or we dull our conscience so that we don't feel so bad. And if either of those don't work, we just distract ourselves. We surround ourselves with the toys and trinkets of this world to distract ourselves, to bury that condemnation behind other things. But playing it off or pretending it's not really what it is only delays the inevitable. Because although they say ignorance is bliss, that's not true. Choosing to live in ignorance before God is neither bliss nor blessed. It's foolish. And the wisest way is prescribed by God of the gospel because he gives you the freedom to say you can actually deal with your condemnation. You can face it. You can deal with the reality of who you are. But only if you accept Christ because to accept Christ means you believe that he stood condemned in your place. That he took the penalty that you deserved. And it's so much easier to respond to Jesus in faith than it is to run away from him or to reject him. And so if you've been living your life that way, if you've been running from God, you've been rejecting him because you don't want to face the music of the way you've been living your life, the gospel gives you permission to stop. Stop, slow down. Don't run away from God, run to him because don't you know there is safer harbor in his presence? Return to him because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus is your strong defender who doesn't come to fight against you but for you. Not to accuse you of sin, but to excuse you by taking his sin upon himself, or your sin upon himself. Now, as I close here, every one of us, we have two options in front of us. Like, like you will leave today having done one of two things. You will either put your faith and trust in Jesus as your strong defense, or you will continue to live as your own defense attorney. And the option is yours. 
1963, the Supreme Court of the United States heard a case uh, called uh, Gideon v. Wainwright. And this court case, the decision of the court was that states are required under the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution to provide an attorney to defendants in criminal cases who can't afford their own attorneys. So states are required to provide an attorney in a criminal case if you can't afford an attorney. And the case came up because uh, Clarence Gideon was arrested one evening and he was accused and, and charged with breaking and, and, and entering with intent to commit petty larceny. Um, and he was tried, uh, but what happened is uh, Clarence Gideon couldn't afford a lawyer. And when he asked for one, the state refused to provide him one, and so he ended up having to defend himself in court. And as you can imagine, it didn't go very well for him. He was quickly found guilty. He was sentenced to five years in state prison. And this is because Clarence Gideon made an awful defense attorney. But he had no choice to defend himself because he stood there alone in the courtroom. Nobody stood for him. And he realized, everyone realized his defense was not enough. It was not sufficient. So he went to prison. But after his uh, appealing to the Supreme Court and winning that appeal, he was then granted the right to an attorney. And so his original criminal case went back to trial again, and this time things were different. They were very different. This time he was able to choose an attorney, Fred Turner, to be his defender. And in that retrial, the jury acquitted Gideon of all charges and declared him innocent. Now there's a similarity and a difference between Clarence Gideon and each of you in this room. The similarity is that you and him both make awful defense lawyers. You won't be able to clear your own name. You won't be able to prove your own innocence. No matter how hard you try. Because in the courtroom of God's justice, your guilt will be found out. But here's the difference. Gideon didn't have representation the first time, but he got a second trial. The difference is, we will not be given a second trial. But that's not worse news. That's better news. It's better news because when we stand before God, our judge, we have a willing defender. It's better news because we have one who volunteers to stand for you and is ready to plead your case. And he does it because he's cleared your charges and he has taken your condemnation. Jesus Christ offers himself to you today as your strong defender. The question is, will you accept him? Because the choice is yours. You can take your chance, you can bet on yourself and stand in your own defense on that final day, or you can rest in Jesus now and trust that he who defends you does so with his life and his blood and his cross. There's a reason to rejoice in Christ, our strong defender. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that when nobody would stand for us and when our own defense would be proven insufficient and inadequate, that Christ Jesus was willing. He not only stood in our corner to give us support and encouragement, but he entered the ring to fight for us. And in fighting for us, Lord, he was slain. 
He was knocked down. He was crucified. But in so doing, He cleared us of our charges and He took our condemnation. And now as we stand before You with Christ, our strong defense, we know, Lord, that on that day we will hear words of welcome. And I pray, God, that any of us here, whether we're trying to pay off or play off that guilt, accusation, the attacks, the finger pointing, Lord, that we would give up on those things and rather we would fall on Christ. Help us to do so, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, receive now God's benediction. Now may the grace and the strong defense of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty who because He is for you nothing can be against you and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the words of dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.